Hi, folks. Thanks for joining us. Those that are joining us on live, either live on this Wednesday evening or as we are later sometime in the week. And for those that are filling the room, it's always great to have you in here. So it's not just me talking to a camera. Uh, we've been talking for the last 15 minutes, uh, some good questions and good conversation. And now it's time for us to transition uh, into uh, biblical worldview. So before we do that, I would like to pray and then I'm going to introduce our subject. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that uh, you are our sovereign God and that you hold us in your hand and that you are with us and that your spirit both um, fills us, gifts us, uh, empowers us, and seals us for glory. And that we are right now in the presence of God because we uh, are gathered together either in person or virtually and where the church of God is, there is the presence of God because we are uh, your temple. So would you bless this time that we have? Would you help us to think well together about um, what a biblical worldview is and why that even matters uh, for us as we continue in this uh, series together? Uh, God, we uh, pray that you will uh, be glorified uh, this evening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I start and introduce, uh, let me just tell you what I've been doing today, because it may matter here in a couple of minutes. Um, I uh, was originally not supposed to be here uh, today. I was actually planning, uh, when I planned this series, I was planning to teach this one um, online. I was planning to teach this one. We were going to record it. And even if people showed up, we were just going to show it. Everybody would just watch it, whether online or in person we're going to watch it. And then, because um, I was supposed to be in class, um, I'm, for those that may be new with us, I'm, I'm currently working on uh, a doctorate and I have a class this week. And I was supposed to be in class today down in uh, Raleigh. And a couple of weeks ago, with some COVID complications there, they moved it to uh, online. Ugh. And so, um, uh, but class started today nonetheless. And so from nine until six, just a few minutes ago, I've been in class uh, with very little, with like a lunch break and, that, and that's it. And so I've been talking about preaching and the classes uh, leading through exposition. So I've been talking about leadership and preaching and evaluating sermons and evaluating books and uh, presenting stuff all day. And um, it's made for a long day. And then now I'm here going to teach. So I say that for two, two for a couple of reasons. First off, um, I have a tendency to get fast talking and misspeak anyway, like I did in the sermon on Sunday. Um, and, uh, if I do that, please offer me some forgiveness. If, uh, I just fall out of my chair here in a moment, my wife will come pick me up and take me home. Um, and, uh, if I end a couple of minutes early, you're just going to know why, because, uh, you can only do so much in a day, but, uh, I had, I had prepared all of this and was ready to go. So here I've opened on my iPad and I'm trying really hard in my brain to, to switch over right into biblical worldview. So last week, uh, we talked about, we asked the question, what is a worldview? Uh, because I realized as I was preparing this, that was not a session that I was going to do, but I quickly began to realize it was going to be a necessary uh, session because it's not necessarily a word we use often. You may read it, you may hear it sometimes, but it's not necessarily a session you hear. So if you're watching this with us online, or even if you were in the room here, I would really encourage you uh, before you go any further to go back and watch week one. You can, uh, you can get it on our podcast through our website. 
or on our streaming platforms or on our social media. Um, because even though I don't talk about the Bible, which is very rare for me, I always talk a lot about the Bible, uh, which I'm going to do today. But it, I, even though I didn't talk a lot about the Bible last week, I think I answered some questions about what a worldview is. And, and here's, here's kind of where we landed. We landed with this illustration that, that I'm going to carry out. It's going to be kind of a running metaphor over the next several weeks that um, a worldview is not just a set of glasses that you put on that you see the world through, but a worldview is, is like the, um, uh, the big black thing. Somebody gave me the name of it last time, and I don't remember what it is. Um, yeah, I still don't know. Um, and, and it's got all the little lenses in it, you know, at the optometry office, and, and they're like, does A work or does B work? You know, which one's better? Because you're seeing through all these different things. A worldview is like that. It's this collection of lenses. It's several lenses piled on one another uh, that come through things like your family, the way you were raised, the place you were raised, the type of environment that you were raised in, the socioeconomic status that you have, or maybe statuses multiple that you've experienced, your, edu- your education, your gender, your race, all of these things really kind of contribute then. And we looked at some of the major worldviews that if we were to really kind of put some labels on certain um, you know, certain worldviews that there were six that we kind of looked at in addition to the biblical worldview and that most people are probably a mixture of some of those. Most people in our culture are going to have a postmodern worldview, very likely um, or possibly, particularly in the Southeast, um, mixed with a moralistic therapeutic deism uh, worldview of, of God. It's so when they think about God, they put him in this box. But when they think about the world, they put him in this box. And, and people in other places and either other places in our country or other places in the world are going to have uh, different ones. And, and all of our experiences and all the things that we believe and all the things that we've done kind of add up to, to this thing that's sitting in front of us that filters information and it takes in the information for us and, and, uh, and helps us to process it and then helps us to react to it. So that is what your worldview is. Your worldview is this system of lenses that you've developed over your life through which you see the world and react to the world. And both of those things are important. I don't want you to just think this is the way that you see the world, because those are the lenses, right? The lens so often speaks to um, you know, processing information, uh, but it is also how we react to it. And we want to be people that view the world biblically, that view whatever life situation it is biblically. And there's so much going on right now in our world that, that is, it's just necessary for us to ask that question, am I seeing this biblically or am I seeing this because I was raised the way that I was or because I have the political affiliation that I do or because I have, you know, I have the, um, you know, they, they, they did a, a poll. I think this one's interesting. Um, they did a, the poll that I saw a couple of weeks ago when they were debating sending people 600 bucks. You remember, you know, some, a lot of us got 600 bucks or whatever it was for, for your family. And they took a poll, and uh, if you were going to get the money, you really thought the government should give it out. Now, not to a person, right, but just kind of like the majority of people. If you were going to get it, you thought it was a great idea. If you weren't going to get it, you thought it was a terrible idea, right? Now, probably what that means is nobody really thought about it beyond their own economic status. Nobody thought about it beyond that. Now, 
the more you think about it, the more nuanced, something we were talking about before 630, the more nuanced you get into the subject, the more you start to see whether you actually think that's a good idea or a bad idea. And then that may not be dependent on your, your economic status. But there's all of these things, right, that, that we see in our world, that we see through these varying lenses. And you're never going to get rid of all of those. That's not even what this equipped semester is about. The equipped semester is not about getting rid of your upbringing. This is, you, you know, the, the difference between what I'm going to be talking to you to the, this semester about um, and that is, that's called brainwashing. <laughs> if, if, the, if the goal was to brainwash you, okay, then what we would want to do is start stripping all of that stuff away. I would want to strip everything your mom and dad taught you out. I'd want to take everything that you learned because you grew up in the Northeast or the Midwest or the Deep South or wherever it was. I'd want to take all of your education and all of that out and replace it with another ideal, that's brainwashing, right? Biblical worldview is not that. A biblical worldview is taking what the Bible says and recognizing that some of those lenses that we have distort things that we're supposed to see. But when we really view it through the, through the scriptures, then we, we can get there, right? And, and so it, it's, it's far more complex and complicated than just let's take all of this junk out of our brains and, and slam the Bible down in it. What, what a biblical worldview is, is, is the, the Bible influencing all of those things and showing you where those things have not helped you and not, are not gospel-centered and are not loving and are not you know, focused on the glory of God and all these things we're going to talk about today from a biblical worldview perspective. Um, so, so this isn't about brainwashing which sometimes the church from, you know, from uh, the ideological left accuses the church of brainwashing, that, that this is, you know, what we do. It's not what we do at all. I mean, I, there, there are some churches and particularly ones that we may categorize as cults, that that is what, exactly what they do. That's not our attempt at all. Our attempt is to help people, I think, learn how to think biblically, not, not replace something, but, but to really learn how to process information biblically, recognizing that these other influences are also there. So now that we've seen what a worldview is, the, the goal tonight is just to define a biblical worldview. Is, is I want us to walk through some big picture ideas in Scripture and see how these things um, add up to be this, this one biblical worldview. Now, you, you could come to me in 45 minutes when I'm done and say, you didn't talk about this, and you would be right. The, the, these are big picture ideas, but they're probably not going to hit everything. But I, again, I only have, I only have so much time. Uh, but I do think they, they are some of the meta-narratives of Scripture. When we say meta-narrative, we're talking about the big picture, the big story of Scripture. Um, and And if we can, if we can think about those things right, then they're going to help us think about some of the some of these smaller ones. But you may be able to come up with some too that would be lenses of a biblical worldview um, that that are going to help. But I'm going to give you several. It looks like um, uh, I'm going to give you five, and then we're going to talk about uh, application of Christian worldview. How do, how do we really apply this uh, into our lives? So let's let's look at these five. The first 
uh, is that God created everything and everything belongs to him. God created everything and everything belongs to him. Now, before those of you joining us online, you know, we take questions for 15 minutes before you guys join us. Uh, And one of the questions was about creation. So for those in the room, if you were here early enough, you you heard, we, we talked about creation some and and I even introduced a little bit of nuance into that conversation in that, that we don't all have to agree on everything there is to, to, to believe about creation because the, the Bible leaves open the idea that we, I may view this a little differently than you. And, and one of us is right and one of us is wrong, but we don't need to break fellowship over that. But what we would say we break fellowship over is the idea that God didn't make everything. Right? That is a core biblical principle that God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1.1, in the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that, that this is all his, that he created everything, and when he did, it was all good. So what God made, the creation that God made was, was he says on multiple occasions in Genesis 1, that God viewed his creation and it was good, and then he steps back at the very end and sees that it's very good, that this is, that, that because God made it, it was made in such a way that it was, in his eyes, good. And for something to be good in God, God's eyes means it's a perfect creation. It, meaning this, it existed as God intended it uh, to exist. Now, we're going to get, in, when we get to another one of these points, we're going to see what happened to creation. But nonetheless, it, it still is God's creation. Even though this creation has been affected by sin, it is still God's creation uh, and it still all belongs to him. Psalm 95 uh, verses four and five says, in his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are, also, uh, are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Everything belongs to God and he is Lord over it. We read another Psalm in Psalm 103. The Lord has established his throne and the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. That the God that we serve is just not the Christian God. He's not the Western civilization God. And I think it's an important point to argue. He's just not the God of earth or the God of our solar system. He is the God of every inch of this universe, that there is no place that he is not God over, whether it be physical, spiritual, Uh, He is the God of all of it, and it all belongs to him. Now, that helps us in a biblical worldview because when we recognize a biblical, when when we look at our world, right, we're talking about bringing it, processing information and reacting to information, um, we have to recognize that this is all God's. So when when that information that we're interacting with, both taking it in and, and reacting to it, um, none of this belongs, not, not a square inch of this place belongs to me. This building doesn't belong to me, and not just because it's a church, but it belongs to God. My home, ultimately, is God's home. This nation, this world, it, it, it all belongs to God. So I should view it as if God owns it and God sustains it, um, and I should... Um, and, and I should react to um, situations in life that have to do with our creation uh, with the premise that this is all God's and it is all sustained by him. So when, you know, there's, uh, there's 
and this is just a, a low-hanging fruit illustration, okay? But they, they would get more nuanced than this. But when, when somebody says, you know, oh, there's, there's this meteor out there and there's this 00, you know, point zero 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 two percent chance that it may hit the earth and destroy the earth. Nah, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Why? Because this is all God's and God, God created it. God is sustaining it. It's going to exist for as long as God uh, wants it to exist. And he's kind of told us, how, how the end's going to come, and that, that's not going to be it, all right? So God created it. It was all good. It all belongs to him. Number two, God reveals himself and his moral standard in the Bible. God reveals himself and his moral standard in the Bible. So we, what we're doing when we go from that first point into the second point uh, is we are narrowing our focus of God. In that first point, there were other religions in the world that could have, if I hadn't quoted scripture, for instance, or would have been speaking very generally about God, would have agreed with us. And, and there are even, if we go back to some of those biblical worldviews that we were talking about last week, you go back to the one called pluralism, right? That says this is all just, we're all on varying winding paths that are all leading to the same place. Um, that that they, a, a pluralistic person would say, sure, it's all God's, as long as we're defining God as in a general sense, not a specific sense. But from a biblical worldview, we have to reject this general appeal to a God who created everything and uh, apply a more specific understanding of that. And that is this second point, that the God of the Bible is the actual God. That, that, that the God of Scripture is, is God, um, that he has revealed himself uh, to us. He has told us, not every, those of you that have taken the doctrine of God with me, um, no, because I, I say this all the time in there. The Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God, right? But it tells us what God wants us to know about him. Everything we need to know about him is in the Scripture. So God's revealed certain things about his character, about his person, about his work, uh, to us, and we know certain things, meaning true things, absolute true things. The only absolute true things that we can know about God are, are, are found in are found in Scripture. Um, have you ever thought about um, in in Exodus? Um, was it Exodus three? Is that the burning bush? This one in my notes. This is just me winging it here. Um, and, and Moses goes up to the, the burning bush and God's like, take your sandals off, you're on holy ground. And I want you to go to my people and say all this stuff. And Moses is like, who, who should I tell them is sending me, right? Um, and God, God says, I am that I am. Okay. That's very something we're, we're mostly all f- familiar with. Um, when you delve really deep into what God, God's saying is, that, that word I am is, is very similar to our to be verb. It is, and it's, it's, um, it's an ongoing word in the, in the Hebrew. Basically what God is saying, you tell them the God that exists, that it, God that exists sent you. Because what was Egypt? Egypt was this big pluralistic, multi-God society, right? And what God, in the name that he gives Moses, what he's saying is, you tell them none of those gods are real. <laughs> that the only God that exists is me. I am that I am. I exist. I be, right? I am. That, that's, that's really neat to think of. And that's, that's what a biblical worldview is. A biblical worldview recognizes that the God of Scripture is the God. 
Not a God, not an option, not one side of viewing God, but the God. And that his moral standard is also in the Bible. That, that it doesn't, the Bible doesn't just tell us about God, but it tells us what we're supposed to understand in Scripture. So the moral law of God and salvation, how we're right with God, are both, are, are both found there. In 2 Timothy 3, uh, 14 through 17, uh, Paul encourages Timothy with this. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Bible tells us true things about God, and the Bible tells us true things about how we can know him and know his moral law and his moral standards. So uh, next week, we're going to ask the question, does truth exist? That's, that's the question that we're asking. Every week is going to be a different question. That's the question that we're at. Does, does, does absolute truth uh, uh, you know, re- really exist? Um, and th- the ultimate answer to that is going to be, well, yes, because God has given us truth. And that's the way that we need to view Scripture. He's given us truth about himself. He's given us truth about us. He's given us truth about his uh, moral standard and salvation. And so we, we got to come to the Scriptures. So for a biblical, and this, this probably seems a little bit redundant, right? But because it's called biblical worldview. Uh, but for a biblical worldview to actually be biblical, it has to be what? based on the Bible. It has to be. So the Bible is where we go. It can't be the Bible and. Even though there is other truth, I'm not saying other truth doesn't exist. There are mathematical truths in the world. There are philosophical truths in the world. um, There are scientific truths in the world, but they are only true if they don't contradict what God himself has said to be true, right? So there's truth in mathematics, because it doesn't contradict what God has said to be true. So you can go to science and math and these kind of things and find truth. You can go to other places and find truth, but they all have to be checked in one place. So even things that external things that we gauge as truth for a biblical worldview, we got to go here and we got to say, okay, is this what God said? Does this somehow contradict what God said? Because if it does, then, then this is my check because it's in the Bible that I learn about God and I learn about his moral standard, uh, and it is only in the scriptures. Number three, evil exists in the heart of every human being. This is, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, this, the, the meta narrative of scripture from our perspective, right? You can talk about the story of redemption, however you want to think about it, uh, from scripture. You know, I always say the meta narrative of scripture is God God um, working to redeem a people for himself and for his glory, right? And, but that, that's kind of taking this big picture view. But what I'm going to describe here is kind of from our perspective, this is how we view this, this you know, what, what our place in that and our place in that meta narrative must be, must begin with the, the understanding that we are all sin, sinful, every one of us. Um, in Romans 5, we read, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
Therefore, as one trespass has led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinful, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, what Paul's tying there is, um, is inherited guilt for sin, right? sin nature, and imputation of righteousness. And, and he, makes, he makes a really clear argument that if, if you don't believe in inherited sin, then you can't believe in inherited righteousness. And if you don't believe in inherited righteousness, then what are you banking on to stand right before God? Because it's certainly not your own righteousness, right? So he makes this really coherent argument. We've got to reckon. Now, our, converse, our type of conversation is not salvation right now. So let's just look at that other side of it. It is through that one man, through Adam, Adam sinned, and through Adam, all have sinned, and we are now in Adam, that all of us, we're not, we're not born without sin. We're, we're born with this draw and proclivity towards evil and sin, that evil exists in the hearts of all of us. There are moral standards um, you know, external to the human race um, that we don't get to define. God is the one who defines, and this appeals back to that previous, uh, that previous point, that it is God's word that we know the moral standard of God. And that moral standard doesn't exist because we say it does. It exists because God says it does. You see, if it was left up to us, morality would be what we so often see in our culture, this really hodgepodge, you know, particularly in a postmodern culture, morality is like trying to nail jello to the wall. The minute you think you've got it, it's moved. Because it, morality in a postmodern culture uh, is whatever makes us feel the most righteous in that moment. Wh- whatever makes us the most indignant in the moment or you know, whatever it is. Like that, that's, that's morality from a sinful perspective. Um, and so the moral standard of God exists externally from us. And we didn't create it. We didn't come up with it. God did. And, and that's important to note because, well, we have evil in our hearts. This is the third point, right? That's what we're talking about, the evil in our, in our heart. It's important for us to recognize that true moral, moral standard exists outside of us because if it came from us, we would never get it right. We may get some things right, some things may line up with it, um, and we'll, that's just because God's imprinted some of it on our hearts even uh, before, we, before we knew it. Human nature, though, is not basically good, except that's how most people in our world talk about humanity. Um, mo- most people, if you ask them, they will say, well, I'm, I'm a good person. Now, they don't believe everybody's a good person. Nobody believes everybody's a good person. There's bad people, Right? Um, and just about everybody will say, oh, yeah, there's, there's bad people. But very, very few will say, I'm one of them. <laughs> Most people think I'm, I'm, genuine, I'm generally good. My neighbor's generally good. But humanity is not basically good. All humans have both good and evil tendencies. The good tendencies come from a specific place. In Romans 2, we read, they show that the work of, of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. 
So there's, there, there's what's known as general grace. So have you ever wondered why a non-Christian person can do something that seems moral and seems to um, align with the will of God? If everybody's evil in their hearts, why do non-Christian, non-redeemed people, why are they able to do good things like love their spouse, love their child, be kind to their neighbor? It's called general grace, all right? That God, in his grace, knowing, that because of the evil in our hearts, if he did not write his law on our hearts, if he didn't tell us some basic things that we call things like the world calls like conscience, right? And just this basic idea of morality. If God didn't do that, think about how bad things really would be. I mean, if things are this bad, <laughs> how bad would they really be if it wasn't for the general grace of God? Um, so, so even the good that we do outside of a redeemed life of Christ is still credited to him. But in the main, we're evil. James 1 says, let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt with evil, and uh, he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured uh, and enticed by what? His own desires. Our desires are ultimately evil, and we are ultimately responsible for those desires. Now, this is all still under that third point, but I hope you see kind of the progression here. All of us have evil. And, and here's why this matters for a worldview. We need to recognize evil for what it is. And we need to recognize not just external evil. We're very good at looking at them and saying, you people are evil. Whether that's Hollywood or D.C. or you know, so, some other piece of culture, we're really good at looking at them and saying that over there is evil. Well, you know what we're not really good at? Looking at us. We're not good at all of, and I'm not just saying looking in my own life. I'm saying we're not really good at looking at the church. Is, the church does a poor job of calling out evil within the church. We, we, do, a, we do a really poor job uh, of, of recognizing that. And that's why this point's so uh, important for a biblical worldview, because when we really understand uh, how evil exists in the world and even still exists tempting, James is writing to Christians, still exists tempting Christians towards evil, then we become better at recognizing evil even within our own midst or the first stages of it or the historical presence of it. That all of those things are things we ought to look at, right? So when you view something in the world, why do Christians get shocked? Let's just go back to them for a minute. Why do Christians get shocked when the world, when sinful people do sinful things? Like, we get all, you know, we clutch our pearls. How? Why? Like, doesn't the Bible tell us that this is just how evil people have been forever? Well, yeah, it's exactly what the Bible says. Now, it's not that we shouldn't oppose it and seek to, bring the gospel to bear in it and view it from a biblical worldview. Um, but it shouldn't surprise us. Evil, evil shouldn't surprise us. It should appall us at times, but it shouldn't surprise us. Number four. Oh, let me, let me just follow up on that last thing really quick because, again, my, my brain's a little scattered. The more I talk, the more scattered I feel like I'm getting in my brain. Uh, humans, are, humans are responsible for their own actions. I've I, I moved on from that too quickly. Um, we don't get to say... Well, God, I didn't know. 
All right. There's going to be a lot of people, I believe, in the judgment seat of Christ that are going to try that very thing. God, I didn't know. Well, we, we don't get to say that, right? Um, God has written enough of his moral law on our hearts that um, we are, Paul says in Romans, without excuse. And so uh, we, we have to view evil people in our world and even evil in our midst, recognizing that it will be judged and that should move us to certain actions. So a biblical worldview that takes into account that everyone is responsible for their actions and will be judged for those actions, that, that's really important to how we then respond in um, the face of something that we would consider evil. Now, number four, the entire natural world is cursed because of sin. It's not just humans. All of this. So what God created is good. This kind of points back to our first point, right? God created it all. He owns it all. It was all good. Now, there's a lot in the natural world that has been affected by sin. The, the, the natural world has not been completely demolished because of sin, but the natural world is affected to it. Creation is no longer the way that God originally made it. It's now different. And so what we think of as natural is not always good, and, and this, this is the way that um, some of our more modern worldviews view nature, right? That nature is, that God is, remember that one we talked about last week? God's kind of in everything. And these people want to talk about the universe, you know, and the universe is directing this and mother nature is doing this. Christians have to see nature as the creation of God. Something that we're going to see here in, in the next point that we're, we're going to interact with in certain ways. But we can't see everything that is in nature as necessarily being the way that God originally made it to be. That our sin has had devastating consequences on nature. So not even all of nature. So, so we can't appeal to nature and say, or at least always, we can't appeal to nature and say, well, this is why I believe that. We've got to filter that through the Bible and ask, well, okay, is that the way that God designed it to be in nature? Or is that a, is that a, uh, a result of sin's effect on, the fall's effect on, uh, on nature? Number five, God wants mankind to use and enjoy the earth's the resources. God wants mankind to use and enjoy the earth's resources. So we're told in Genesis 1, for instance, to be fruitful and multiply. And be fruitful and multiply is, is a command um, to propagate, but it is also a command to use. And, and, and not to abuse, uh, but to use and to care for. And that's the picture that we see in Genesis 2 is Adam and Eve, uh, Adam naming animals, right? All of this is showing, it speaks to dominion. Um, caring for the garden, it speaks to to to, to responsibility, uh, man's responsibility within uh, within culture or within nature. Um, but uh, and so the command to be fruitful and multiply still applies today. It was a command both that existed before the fall and after the fall, uh, and and it is overarching. It is uh, our responsibility to. Um, to live in this world, to enjoy this world, but to not be wasteful or destructive in it. 
You know, for instance, Proverbs 12, 10 says, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. That, 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 that was a, that's an ancient way of saying, um, as, as the crowning work of God's creation, we have a responsibility to care for it. You know, one of the worst things I think, um, God, me ad-libbing when I'm tired, it's probably not a great plan. I'm going to do it anyway. It's going to be on tape. Uh, one of the worst things that I think we, modern church, in the last 30 years, 40 years, have done is abdicate our responsibility for the environment to a political ideology. So now when you hear environmentalist, depends on your political ideology, you automatically bristle, right? You start thinking about, you know, people hugging trees and chaining themselves to things. You think about people that, you know, want to ban plastic straws and, and you think about people that want to have carbon emission taxes. Like, like depends on your political ideology. Like you, you, you automatically, because the church stopped talking about it. The church stopped talking about that we are the ones that are responsible for this world. Now, I'm not endorsing any of those things or all of them. Some of those things may be good ideas. Some of them may not right? But the fact that the church just stopped talking about our relationship with this world and how we are supposed to be stewards of it. And here, I mean, just, let me just speak plainly. What drove this was capitalism. Now, capitalism is not a bad thing, right? But what drove it was we wanted to, we wanted to promote the free market. And if the free market abused all of the earth, we just didn't care. And I, that's, that, by the way, I don't think a biblically defensible position. I don't think Christians have to be environmentalists as, you're, as we are conditioned by our culture now to think about environmentalists. I'm not saying that. But I do think culture, Christians have to care about the environment. I think we do have to care about God's creation. When you, did you notice that? When I said Christians have to care about the environment, you heard it one way. But when I said God, Christians have to care about God's creation, you heard it another way. You know I meant the same thing, right? <laughs> I said the exact same thing. But I used a word that triggers something in so many people's brains. Um, but we don't get to be wasteful. We don't get to be destructive. It, it, it is, a, it is a, through a biblical lens that we are supposed to see this thing that all belongs to God and care for it. So then you see how this thing comes full circle. So then what's the application of a Christian worldview? If those are some of the big narrative, big picture things about a Christian worldview, then, then how, do we, um, how do we apply that? Well, first, everything must be tested by Scripture. The Word of God is still relevant today. Uh, the Word of God is still relevant for today's issues. And so um, just because something may not have been an issue in the first century doesn't mean we can't test it according to God's Word. I think the inverse of that is true. Uh, we so often think, well, you know, this wasn't true back in Roman times. If, if you've ever really done any study about just how pagan Rome was, um, uh, you'd not, there's a lot of places that Paul was writing to that had it much worse than we have it now as far as the proliferation of sin goes. Um, 
And uh, we, we like to think, you know, we view that back through like a Victorian lens and we think everything was great back then. It's not anymore. It's just not the way uh, that it is. But regardless, the word, the word of God is, is how we test everything. Hebrews 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the, to the vision of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word gives us um, instruction that is, that are definitive commands that we are supposed to then take and apply to how we live, how we think, um, how we view God, how we view one another, how we view the world. And the world, the, the Bible gives us something that is a little more difficult, takes a little more nuance, a little more practice. The Bible gives us principles. So some things are definitive statements. Some things are, uh, principles that we apply, but all of scripture from the beginning to the end is something that we must test things through. We don't get to just, we don't get to get tested through those lenses that we think we've developed. And what is, I think, still dangerous in um, our part of the world is that a lot of people truly believe they have a biblical worldview because of the way they were raised. Mama taught me this, grandmama taught me this, I went to church, I did these things. And so we convince ourselves that our view is the biblical worldview when we miss a step. I watch Christians do this a lot in their, in their instantaneous, we talked last week about instantaneous reactions, you know. Those knee-jerk reactions so much tell, tells us so much about our, our worldview. And um, they really think they're responding as a Christian should respond. And listen, we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. We think we're responding as a Christian is supposed to respond. And we're not actually responding through a biblical worldview. We're responding through those other lenses. But we've become so convinced that many of those other lenses, my upbringing, my education, you know, whatever, that so many of those other lenses are actually the biblical lens when they're not. When what a Christian worldview says is actually go to the scripture. Because it is the thing that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the thing that discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Then we go to the scripture. And when you take people to the scripture and you say, okay, when you, when you are thinking in that way and we go to the scripture and we see it, if we're honest and we're really willing to allow the Holy Spirit to do his work in our lives, we end up going, oh, wait, I was viewing that all wrong all along. But how did I begin last week? I began last week by saying one of the big problems in our culture right now is we refuse to be wrong. We just absolutely refuse uh, to, uh, to ad- admit that we got something wrong, even in the face of evidence, right? And so I'm seeing that more and more with Christians today is that, you know, a Christian will have a knee-jerk reaction. They'll think they're right biblically, and you'll say, what about this? Um, and, and they'll say, well, I, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. I've, I've had people tell me, well, I don't know where the Bible says it, but I know the Bible does. <laughs> and somebody told me that recently about, I'm really gonna get myself in trouble. Um, I had somebody tell me that recently about, um, about the end times, conversations of the end time, and that, that, the, the, um, that eventually we were all, all gonna go to, to one currency in the world. You've heard that, right? Some of you believe that, right? There's nowhere in the Bible that you can show me that this says that. And it just isn't, okay? It's like, you know, the Bible. 
And they were, they were responding to something about currency, right? So it was, a, it was a topic of interest. It was something, you know, I don't remember what it was. It wasn't like yesterday. Um, but it was something about chips or something about, you know, Bitcoin. I don't remember what it was. And it was like, oh, this is just a sign of the end times. Because, you know, the end times, we're all going to have one currency. Is it, where does it say that about the end times? Well, I don't know, but I'm sure that it does. Well, no, it really, really doesn't. <laughs> And I'm not saying there won't be a one-world currency as we get to the end times, but I'm just saying the Bible doesn't say that, it, that there will. We just, we just don't want to admit that we're wrong. And so we need to. We need to, we need to constantly be letting the Scriptures cut us, cut me, and, and then, and then you know, corporately, that our church is constantly being cut by the, by the Scriptures um, so that, that we are truly seeing things the way the Bible wants us to see it and not the way that we've been conditioned um, to, to see. Second application, the advancement of God's kingdom must take priority. The advancement of God's kingdom must take priority. Um, you may be a huge proponent of capitalism, a huge proponent of democracy and freedom. You may think that those are principles worth dying for. And here's the thing. I'm not telling you that you're wrong. But if those principles, and I know, look, I know my audience. I know I'm speaking into, um, I know who I'm talking to, all right? If those principles are more important to you than this, Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, then all these things will be added to you. If, if, if the if some type of American dream, American ideal, some type of economic system, some type of um, political pride, like if any of that, look, I would, I would burn all of that to the ground for the kingdom of God. That, that needs to be our position. I, I'd, 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 give a, I'd give it all up for, 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 the, for the kingdom of God. On a, that's a macro level, right? And not something I can control. I can't control our economic system and say, well, let's switch to this. And, and I'm, I'm not even advocating for that. But on a micro level, here's what that means. It means I'm not going to do so much arguing and damage with someone who may disagree with me on one of those other principles, something else that I think is really important. And maybe you don't care about economic principles or political. Those are just good illustrations. Maybe you care about something else. But... The advancement of the kingdom of God must take priority. It, it cannot be anything else. So I can't sacrifice on a micro level, personal level. I can't sacrifice relationships with this person over something that is not the advancement of the kingdom of God. I must, in my life and in my relationships and in our church, we must seek thing else. And these applications are really good tests, right? That, that, that's not the lens itself, but it's a good way of knowing are we actually viewing it through a biblical lens, are, are we really seeing the world through a biblical worldview? And, and, and a good test, I think this one is, is a great one. I think that first one, are we, are we constantly going to the word? But this one's a great one too. Am, am I allowing the way that I view the world um, uh, to, to lead me to exalt principles of the world, ideals of the world, people of the world, whatever it is? Am I allowing me, uh, things to exalt in my life to the same place or even beyond the advancement of the kingdom of God. I'd sell all, we, we ought to be those who are willing to sell all that other stuff up the river. And you may say, well, 
If it's not for, you know, democratic freedom, then, then we can't have that. No, no, listen to what the verse says. All these things will be added to you. I, I don't need a certain economic system. I support one personally. I don't ever preach for one, though. I support a certain um, um, political system, I would think, in my mind. I don't ever preach it, though. Um, why? Because that's, that's, not what, that's not what we're about. All of those ends will be added. Everything that we need will be added if we just seek first the kingdom of God. And it may not look like we originally thought. So that's a good test for us. Number three, human dignity must be valued. In Matthew 22, Jesus has an encounter with a lawyer um, who's going to ask him a question, who's going to test him, right? And he says, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Remember, they, there's all of these commandments in the law. There's the Ten Commandments. There's all the other commandments that kind of supplement those. And, he, and Jesus answered him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Um, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws depends on all the law and the prophets. That, that we have to value human dignity. We have to value here. And here's why I want to use a because there's other passages that talk about this, but here's why I think this one's helpful. We value the dignity of every human life from conception to grave. Um, not just because they're a person, but because they're a person that bears the image of God. And so when I love another person, when I value another person, when I give another person human dignity, when I recognize that dignity, what am I really doing? I'm loving God. Because while that person may not be redeemed, that person is created in the image of God. Now, I got this question, I think, from Brandon just a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning. Is everybody a child of God? No. Everybody's a creation of God, and everybody has the image of God. Child of God is a unique term in Scripture that talks about the redeemed, right? So we don't want to get those two things confused. Politicians get those two things confused, and they say, we're all God's children. They say that all the time, right? We're not. But we are. And by denying that, I don't want you to hear me say that, that those others, those that aren't redeemed, are somehow less than. They're not. They are equally, they have equal dignity because they have the image of God within them. And so when I love them, I love God. John writes to the church in his old age, he writes to the church, and he says in John, 1 John 3, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God love, God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this third, this is the final one, this, this third biblical worldview test, this application, right, is when I see and experience something and then I react to it, am I loving people? I mean, am I really loving people? It doesn't mean I have to affirm a lifestyle. It doesn't mean I have to affirm an action. It doesn't mean I have to in any way show them the kind of support even they may demand. And this is where we're going as a culture, that, that the culture was saying um, you need to tolerate, and now the culture is saying, is demanding, you know, get in line. And not just behind one thing. The culture saying, get in line behind anything that the culture deems to be 
right? The, the standard, the, the, this, is, this is how we're, defi- what we were talking about earlier, like this is how we're defining right and wrong. And so if the culture says it's right, you better, you better not just tolerate that we're saying it's right, which is what it was at one point. Now it's saying you, you, better, you better get in line behind it. And look, you're not ever going to hear me to say get in line behind something that the Bible does not say get in line behind. All right? And we're going to talk when, when in, I got two more weeks of kind of thinking about this um, in some big picture ways. And then we're going to get into some specific issues. All right? And in a lot of those specific issues, uh, we're going to have some really detailed conversations because what I'm going to seek to show is here's how the Bible tells us. And so many of these deal with people, okay? Here's how the Bible tells us to think about this. But then how do we think about this and bring the gospel to bear and love that person as God has called us to love them? So that's, that's the test, right? Am I really viewing this through a biblical worldview? Am I denying the Mago Dei, the image of God, in someone else's life? Am I denying them dignity by the way that I treat them or the way that I talk about them or the way that I act about them, even if they're doing something that is sinful and wrong? Even if they're treating me evil, even if they're demanding something of me. And again, it's not about getting in line, um, but it is about still recognizing a person as a person created in the image of God, that we are called to love, not just in word, right? We say in one of our core values here that we will show love to all people at all times. That's one of our core values of our church. And the the full core value is we will show love to all people at all times while giving special support to the orphan, the widow, and the unborn. Uh, But that, and we do the last thing really well, I think. I mean, we had Christ's Pregnancy Center people here last week. We, We did uh, we dealt with, uh, you know, we deal with orphan care and foster care and that sort of thing through our partnership with Bear Foundation. Like we, we care for people, I think, as a church really, really well, those three categories. Um, that first clause, though, we will show love to all people at all times. I think it's something we say. I think it's something we really want to be true. But I do believe it's sometimes uh, something that we allow some of our other lenses <laughs> to influence. And we really don't love people quite the way that we should. And I say we because I mean we. Me, you, us. I think that's, that's an issue. And, and the, more, the more marginalized, and I don't see this changing, the more marginalized the Christian church becomes in our culture, if we grow towards persecution, the Western church is not being persecuted, folks. There are maybe individual people within the Western church that have been persecuted, but the Western church is, we don't know persecution, okay? Um, I've been in countries that persecute Christians. I've seen it with my own eyes. We're not there yet. Let's say we get there. I don't lament being marginalized, and I don't lament being persecuted. Like The I, I, Bible tells us those, th- those things w- will come. What I would lament is, though, us, as we continue to be moved into a corner, um, us stop loving people, even the people that are moving us in the corner, even the people that are making us walk, right? If a man makes you walk a mile, go the second. Someone takes your coat, give him your cloak too. Um, That that we've got to to keep at the forefront of our minds. We will show love to all people at all times. Not, not affirming certain things, not getting in line. We're not, we're not 
the church that's going to fall in line with culture necessarily. Uh, but man, people ought to know we, we love them. So those are the kind of the three applications, the three tests. Am I going to the word of God with it? Um, is this advancing the kingdom of God? And is this helping me love people? Because our biblical worldview should, uh, should do that. All right. I went 55 whole minutes. Let me pray and we're going to be done. Thank you, God, for giving us your truth, for telling us who you are in it, and for revealing to us your moral law that we may know it and hide it in our hearts and we may not sin against you. Help us, God, to test the way that we see this world and interact with it through the truth of your word, through the proclamation and spread of your kingdom, and through our, the call for us to love you as we love everyone. Let that be our cry. Help us in our failure to do those things uh, because we allow our other lenses uh, to dominate the one uh, that should be our most precious guide. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us, uh, those of you online. Next week, is absolute truth a real thing? That's our topic of conversation. Thank you for being here.